take a copy of God's Word in hand and please open it to the prophet of Micah chapter 4. So either turn to the table of contents and find Micah, or if you're using a Bible in the Purack, you can turn to page 778. Tonight we'll consider all of Micah chapter 4. Last week we took a break for our prayer service, so let me remind you, uh, what do we have here in the book of Micah? It may be helpful as you're reading the book to recognize that what we have recorded for us is the anthology of Micah's preaching ministry. Micah, contemporary of Isaiah, his ministry is happening sometime between, as far as we can tell, um, from the dates he gives, dated by the kings in verse 1 of chapter 1, his ministry is somewhere between 750 to 687 B.C. He is preaching during the time of the divided kingdoms. He addresses Israel in the north and Judah in the south. But what we see of his ministry is that he has more to say to Jerusalem, which is the capital of the southern kingdom. And the Lord gave him great courage to speak against the sins and the sinfulness of God's people, and especially the sin that was promoted and came by way of the leaders of God's people in his day. In this collection of his teaching, we have a series of oracles. There were oracles of judgment, followed by oracles of salvation. Now, part of the challenge is that the oracles aren't arranged in a strict chronological fashion. Like in many of the prophets, we can read a prophecy that applies to Micah's day in one section, and then in the next section, he can be referring to something that will happen hundreds of years after his day. And then there are sections of prophecy of things that are yet to be fulfilled, Martin Luther once said about reading the prophets, and I think it, it may be a relief to us and some help. Listen to what the reformer said about the prophets. The prophets have a strange way of talking. Like people who instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, they ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. And for you and I, I hope that's somewhat of a relief as we work through and study and labor and in looking into a book like Micah. But with that said, there is a general pattern that helps us interpret and apply this book in God's Word. The general pattern is this, is that when an oracle of judgment is given, it is then followed with an oracle of salvation, meaning as his message was compiled and put together, this is the pattern. And so Micah 4 is in the second set of oracles, if you would. Micah 3, we see a very clear message of judgment. And then in Micah 4 begins the corresponding message of deliverance and salvation. And in Micah 4, we see the promise of a glorious kingdom. And next week, this oracle of salvation continues into Micah 5. And we have the promise of Messiah who will lead the glorious kingdom. Now before we read Micah 4, let us pray and ask for God's help this evening. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you once again 
hungry for your word. We ask that you would feed us, that through it we might come to a better understanding of your character, your ways, and most importantly, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we ask that in what is recorded of Micah's prophecy that you would speak to us. That the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together as we can look into your word would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord, of the house of the Lord, shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. And peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes from strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. In the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, the kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and shall dwell in the open country, and you shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled and let us gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I'll make your horn iron, and I'll make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Amen. And so far, God's word. We all don't think the same way. People are trying to figure out 
the differences between the way people think. And maybe you've heard of the categories of uh, left brain and right brain. If you're mostly analytical and methodical in your thinking, you are supposedly left-brained. If you tend to be more creative or artistic, you are supposedly right-brained. Now, these are broad generalizations and, at best, a theory to try to explain how our minds tend to operate. But if we, for a moment, accept the generalization and step back and consider how the Bible at different points appeals to both those of us who are left-brained and those of us who are right-brained. There are different genres. There are very literary devices. And all of them, in God's wisdom, play a role in renewing our minds so that we might think God's thoughts after Him. God has given us each an imagination. We are to cultivate our imagination according to His Word. So, it is important to think analytically about sections of prophecy, but we must also allow sections like this to fire up our imagination and allow God's words to paint visions of hope. That's what we have here in Micah 4, a prophecy of a golden age to come, particularly in verses 1 through 5. We should meditate on it. Have it fill our imagination. Allow it to evoke feelings. It is truth expressed. It is truth expressed in something of affective, an affective poetry. It is the real story of what our God will do. And so, as we read this oracle of salvation, we need to Seek to do three things. First is allow it to be effective, to affect us, impact us. Then believe it, and then have it shape our worship. So along those lines, a simple outline for this evening is, in verses 1 through 5, I want us to see God's plan for Zion. And then verses 6 through 13, I want us to see God's plan for His people. Then we'll close with considering our present and future hope. Verses 1 through 5, look back there in your Bibles. God's plan for Zion. Here, this paints a picture of the hope we have in God's future reign. Now, what do we mean by Zion? Zion is another way, quite simply to, in Scripture, to refer to Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the capital of Judah a place that David established as the capital of the kingdom, a place that was a ridge, a height. It provided a strategic location. And here it is to be the location of the temple. And so Zion and Jerusalem are interchangeable. But it is the prophetic way of speaking of Jerusalem as the mountain of God, the mountain of God of Zion, that everything that happened on Mount Sinai is then to come and be implemented on Mount Zion. But we learned earlier in the book of Micah that Zion is not in a good state. 
the people are unfaithful. There is injustice rampant in the society. And that God has come and will come with judgment against his people. So as you hold your place in Micah 4, you look back just to verse 12 of chapter 3. How did chapter 3 end? Therefore, because of you, this is the wicked rulers and leaders in Jerusalem, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. See, in the ancient Near East, it was thought that gods met with their people on mountains. And so this is a, 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 a damning judgment against God's people saying that, no, you will be humbled and any exaltation, God will say, you are not behaving like my people. I'm removing my blessing and my presence from among Zion. That's where chapter 3 ends. And then chapter 4 says, it shall come to pass in the latter days, in a day to come, that the mountain of God will be restored. Now, what does that restoration look like? Well, the first thing we see that the restoration will look like is that this mountain will be a temple mountain where true worship will be restored. In Micah chapter 1, Micah condemns the idolatry of, that is happening both in Jerusalem and in Samaria, both in the northern and in the southern kingdom. And here there is, in verse 1 of chapter 4, the hope that there will no longer be perverted worship among God's people, but true worship will be restored. And that the mountain will be lifted high, and what will happen? All the peoples will come. So we see there in verse 2 that God's word becomes the desires of the nations. We see the elect from every nation now go on a pilgrimage to Mount Zion there in verse 2. And Micah gives us a glimpse of almost as if this is what they're saying as they're coming to Mount Zion. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Speaking of a glorious day, a day in which then when all the inhabitants of the earth will look to the Lord, delighting in His truth, delighting in His law. It is a glorious day to come. And from there we see that in that day, God's righteous rule results in two things. In verses uh, 3 and in verse 4. We see that as worship is restored, as the word of God is proclaimed and obeyed and delighted in, we see that God takes his place on his throne. He judges among the nations and there's no need for war. There's peace. And there's also prosperity. That there is peace and prosperity. The peace is with the image of, of there in verse 3 that swords are beaten into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. Instruments for destruction are turned into instruments of cultivation. Weapons that brought about death are now used for the cultivating that, the land to 
give life-sustaining food. It's the picture of universal peace in the reign of God. But then also there's this restoration of prosperity. I'm using the word prosperity in the best sense of the word. We've got to remember that what in Micah's audience in his day, one of the things that he is condemning was, and we saw this in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 3, of the rich taking advantage of the poor. But here he's speaking of every man having his own property in verse 4. Every man shall sit under his own vine, his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. To Micah's first hearers, this was such a hopeful promise. See, when they came into the promised land, the people of God, they were allotted land and property. And that belonged to you. That was yours. It belonged to your tribe. And even if you came into great debt and you had to forfeit your land for a period, there was provisions for the land to be restored to you. The year of Jubilee. But what has happened is that Jerusalem has become so corrupt that they're not following God's instructions for the inheritance of the land any longer. And that those who have more means are taking advantage of those who are poor. And then furthermore, we saw in chapter 3 that when the poor go and seek help and they go to their judges and they go to the courts that the rich are so wealthy that they bribe the judges. And here Micah says that's going to be reversed. That when God reigns and when his kingdom comes in fullness, that every man will sit under his own vine and fig tree. And they will not be afraid of unjust rulers, of corrupt judges. It's a glorious picture. It is a picture that captivates the imagination. Interestingly, this particular verse is something that captivated one of the founding fathers of this nation. I'm sure several of you, when you heard verse 4, immediately thought of the Hamilton soundtrack. Um, there, uh, George Washington sings this line, but it was an accurate uh, portrayal of George Washington because oftentimes he referenced uh, Micah chapter 4, verse 4 in his letters. It was something of the vision that he had for this nation. He'd hoped that this would be a place that each man would be able to sit under his own vine and fig tree and then would be safe. That's a noble aspiration and is a, a good thing. There's a sense in which we should embrace and support such a vision for our community now. In the words of Jeremiah, we'd seek the prosperity of the city that we find ourselves in, the good of our neighbors. But we do need to be careful. Be reminded that this is not today. This is a day to come. And we do not set our hope in this day. And the goal is not to seek the prosperity of this day. The goal is to see the gathering of sinners into the church. That we remain the church in a spiritual battle. Militant. We are representatives of another kingdom. Our hope 
is not in this kingdom. We are awaiting the day when the conquering king returns and Zion is raised above all the mountains of the earth. So we see a righteous rule. We see peace. We see prosperity. We see true worship in this day to come. We also see holiness. Pervasive holiness among the inhabitants that are coming to this mountain and among the people of God. Where do we see that? Well, in verse 2, it says that as they are coming to hear the word of God, that we may walk in his paths. And then in verse 5, it says, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. The Hebrew idiom for walk is meant the lifestyle. It's the the way of living. It's your worldview worked out in the way that you go about day-to-day life. And here is this beautiful picture that there is none who are corrupt. There are none who are taking advantage. There are none who are perverse that all are walking with the Lord. It is a glorious vision. We pause there and consider verses 6 to 13. We will return and close with considering Zion again. But let's look at verses 6 to 13, God's plan for his people. And here we see God, until the time that his kingdom comes in fullness to this world, is orchestrating all of history for the salvation of his people. In verses 6 through 8, we see it's not just the nations that are coming to Mount Zion but that among God's rebellious, corrupt, unfaithful, covenant-breaking people, he will preserve a remnant and that he will bring them out. Notice what he says in verse 6, And that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, verse 7, and those who were cast off a strong nation, And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, verse 8, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. There in verse 8 is an allusion to the heights of what they would have saw under David and then especially under King Solomon's reign. And during King Solomon's reign, it was the closest to the highest peak of an earthly kingdom where they were enjoying the blessing of God and peace and prosperity. And he says, to his people who are sinful, who are worshiping idols, he says, among you, there will be those that will see my salvation, that will see this glorious hope, that he is preserving a remnant. But what does it tell us about the remnant? The remnant comes from those who are lame. But why are they lame? Well, it said there in verse 6, they are lame because they are those who the Lord afflicted. Here is God's working in history. Here is God's dealing with a sinful people. He will preserve a remnant, and He will do that through chastising His people. The discipline of the Lord will pull a remnant out of a lost people. There in verse 9, we see that the failure is reported to be their kings and their leaders. The people have followed wicked leaders, 
And so in verse 9, he says, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Micah is at the moment piling on. Here is the disaster before you. God will bring a remnant out from among those who he will afflict. And he says, but who is the king? Who is the leader who will lead you in righteousness? Who will lead you back into the ways of the Lord? That answer is coming. The answer comes in Micah chapter 5. Micah is posing a question to them, getting them to think, questioning leaders who are not obeying and implementing God's word. He wants to install in his people a desire for a deliverer, the longing for a Messiah. And then in verse 10, we see how the affliction of the Lord will come to his people. It says, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now this is one of those predictions in Scripture that ties the critics of the Bible in knots. And they say there's no way that if Micah lived in the day that he lived, that he would be able to accurately do this, that this is something that's been corrupted. But this is God speaking his word through his prophet well over a hundred years before this will take place. In 586, there'll be the final deportion, and the last king of Judah will be brought into Babylon. His sons will be killed before him. There's a testimony that there'll be no lineage to follow him. That's the last thing he sees, and then the king of Babylon takes and he burns the eyes of the last king of Judah here. God says this is coming. Here is Micah prosecuting God's people, saying that you have not been faithful to the covenant. The penalties of breaking God's covenant is coming. You'll be removed from the land. But then, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Judgment and salvation. There's more to say, but let's continue looking at the verse. Verse 11. The nations whom God will use as his instruments to bring judgment against his people, they mock the people of God. They assemble against you and they say, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. Babylon will get too big for their britches. They'll believe that they are the greatest and they were all along God's instrument for his purposes, working out his plan in history. And they too will be leveled and destroyed and replaced by another empire. And so empires and kingdoms come and go according to God's unfolding providence as he is working things out towards his ends, his goals, his purposes. And all of it will serve the redemption of his people. That's what the Lord says in verse 12. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. That he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. 
Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and should devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. The very instruments that God uses to judge his people, God will judge. He is just. And it will be more than chastising those enemies of his people. He will decimate them as you would separate sheaves that they will crush their enemies. God will vindicate his people. So here in this short section, within this oracle salvation, we see Micah's pattern. We see judgment and salvation here in verses 6 through 13. There is doom that is coming, but the doom is not forever. It's replaced by hope. God's people will be exiled. But there is a rescue that is coming. And throughout Micah's prophecy, there's this interplay of doom and hope. Doom and hope. But it is arranged in such a way that the final note always ends on hope. That's where we're going this summer in the book of Micah. Greater weight is given to hope. In the words of Another prophet, mercy triumphs over judgment. See, Micah's name means who is like Yahweh, the Lord. Who is like the Lord? Behold our God here. He is incomparable. Look how He is working in the lives of men and nations to redeem His people and for His glory. Consider how incomparable God is. Judah deserves judgment. And they will experience God's just judgment. And He remains committed to forgive and restore. It's the interplay we see throughout Scripture. It's woven throughout the biblical narrative. The interplay of wrath and mercy throughout the Scriptures. God sends a flood and saves a remnant from it. God gives a people the land, destroys Jericho, but saves a prostitute, Rahab, who trusts in the God of Israel. And we could go on and on with examples of how throughout Scripture, from doom to hope, judgment to salvation, wrath and mercy, ultimately becoming most clear for us to see in the cross of Jesus Christ. That where the wrath and mercy of God meet, and for the sake of His people, mercy absorbs the wrath of God in order that we might be redeemed and saved. Lastly, let's consider our present and future hope that we take away from this passage. We can look at verses 1 through 5, and we could identify from Scripture at least three fulfillments. There are, you could say, anticipatory fulfillments where they, they build. 
they built to a greater and greater fulfillment. And so it's getting the fulfillment of the exaltation of Mount Zion and God's reign over all the earth and all peoples. Well, first, the exile ends in 538, and there is a remnant that goes back to Babylon, and the temple is rebuilt. But the temple pales in comparison to the glory of Solomon's temple. But it is an initial, you could say, anticipatory fulfillment. We see God fulfilling His Word through Micah. And then, in a greater way, we see in Christ's ascension a greater fulfillment of this. And what do I mean? Christ ascends to the heavenly sanctuary, to the heavenly temple, in which the mountain of God was to be a picture of heavenly realities. And in Christ's ascension, a gathering geographic location for God's worship is done away with because Christ reigns from heaven over all. The need for an earthly mountain to come and touch and worship God is done away with. That Jesus, we could say, is our Zion. But that's not the last fulfillment. The final fulfillment is in Revelation 21 when that heavenly sanctuary in which we have access to now as believers, comes in a physical, tangible form, a reality where heaven comes down and there's a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, Revelation 21. The final fulfillment is our future hope. These verses 1-5 through of Micah, it's It's heaven on earth. God has promised it will come. And in the darkness of living in between the the fall of Adam and the restoration of all things, we need to allow visions like this to shape our imagination so that we have a lucid and clear, vivid hope of what awaits those who are trusting in the Savior. But it's not just something that we are waiting for. It is something we touch today. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, 
yet once more indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Here is, believer, your great hope that through Christ now, you have access to heaven. The heaven that is one day to come down, you have access there. And especially when we gather as God's people in worship, there is a, an opening. We have an audience with God and he speaks to us. And he has a word for us to hear. And until that day that we have here in Micah chapter 4, we can expect everything around us to be shaken, but we are not because of this sure hope. And so we remind ourselves of this as we gather as God's people singing God's praises, coming in the name of the Son, bringing our worship now, looking forward to the day when His glory covers all of the earth. And that evil is done away with and there is no more rebellion against our God. When the consuming fire comes and consumes all that is anti His kingdom, and only his kingdom remains. That is our hope. Let it fill our vision and be the foundation of our living. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the words of Micah, and may it feed our confidence in you and what you are doing and what you will do. And on this sure foundation, let us live and serve you by the power of your Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.